0: I'd like to start off by of a show. By give me a taste of a little something we call Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and
1: roll. Rock and roll. Oh. Rock and I roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll.
0: It's rock and roll, it's rock and roll to me.
2: all right welcome to the it's only rock and roll podcast i'm don dimuccio and today is the all drummers edition of it's only rock and roll later on in the show we'll be talking to a man who made up the backbone of billy joel's band touring and recording with the piano man from 1974 to 2004 and has now written about those 30 years in his memoir liberty life billy and the pursuit of happiness one of my drumming heroes liberty devito But first, I met today's co-host back in 1990 when I was first getting my band black and white off the ground, and our respective bands were on the bill at a Rhode Island club called the Full Moon Saloon, I believe. I was about 18 or 19, and I was used to hearing heavy-hitting drummers, but I hadn't seen one yet who could swing like a jazz cat with the power of John Bonham behind it all until I heard this guy, drummer of Neil and the Vipers, my good friend Mike LaBelle. Hello, Mike.
3: How you doing, Don?
2: What, are you calling from a payphone?
3: Yeah, pretty much. Nice. No, nothing but the best equipment on my end. Yeah, who needs all this fangled crap? But uh, I just wanted to be first to tell you, uh, yours was the first podcast I've ever listened to in my entire existence, and it's an honor to be actually part of the same podcast. Oh man, thank you. That means a lot. So thank you for that, because uh, it, it's, a, it's a nice format, and I, I just was not glued in
2: you know it was your first was i gentle oh yeah good good oh yeah it's all good (laughs) my first question mike labelle um how exactly are you related to patty
3: um i am absolutely not related and it's it's not my fault given a choice i would have been
2: i I missed my cue (laughs) i'm I'm still working out the kinks it's gonna take me a while i love it so drums what the hell is wrong with us
3: uh, yeah, it's a sickness. It really it, is. Uh, it, it takes your mind. It takes your soul. Uh, it takes every extra penny and then some that you've got to uh, keep up with the Joneses, and not really. Uh, you know, I, I I buy stuff that doesn't even fit into the budget because you just got to have it.
2: You remind me of those guys who work on their cars. That's like your relationship to it your drums. It is
3: about that. Yeah, it's about that same sickness. Yeah. I, I know a few people like that, and, and it it really never ends. No. You know, as soon as you've got exactly what you want, something else comes along, and all the stuff you just got together, oh, that doesn't count anymore because now you got a new goal.
2: And then over the years, your ears change too. So what you thought was true. cool 20 years ago is not what you think you want to yep. hear. Yeah, you
3: you tend and uh, you know I often sit back and wonder, am I the only one hearing this? Right. You know, right. I mean, it, but then I see a lot of people on the same page as I am, and it, it you know I can sit back and relax and say, okay, I'm part of a good crowd here, so that's that's a good thing.
2: What got you started in the drums?
3: Uh believe it or not, I started on guitar, and uh, pitiful, terrible, couldn't do it. Yeah. But uh, then uh, another local drummer, John Aykona. Uh, he had a band with uh, friends. We were all hanging out. You know, we we were all buddies, uh, in the same neighborhood, and uh, we all hung out together. He had a band together with other friends of mine, and uh, I used to go over and watch him. So he was really my original. You know, he was the guy I watched. Wow, was that's this, really cool? What was his style? Oh well, they were doing cover rock at the time. A lot, you know, like Aerosmith. Yeah, and yeah. You know that era. Yeah, okay. You know, the Dream On era, yeah. uh, we were listening to Zeppelin and, you know, all that rock and roll stuff. And I used to physically watch what he was doing. Okay, he's moving his arm like this, moving his foot like that. And after a while, you know, between the two of us, because we, we, you know, kind of bounce ideas off each other. And he knew a lot more about it than I did. I mean, he could read music and everything else. And uh, it, it was big fun learning how to play because, wow, you get to hit stuff. <laughs> right. and little little <laughs> did I know eventually people hand you money to hit stuff, so you know it's all good it is incredible it's all good and and watching him was absolutely instrumental because I could physically see what he was doing and then you know adapt it to me. I finally went out and bought a twenty dollar drum set, took it home and and practiced until I could you know play along with a song. Either on the radio or on a record. You remember records, right? Oh, still buy them. Yeah, yeah gotta love it. But uh, yeah, so that's that was the absolute first thing that got me started, and and from then on, uh, it's just been you know it, it really is a love. I, I I cannot do without it. I feel empty inside if I don't play.
2: That's huge. That's it it huge is
3: because easy. every night on stage is a joy, yep. even when I'm you know exhausted. It perks me up, puts me on the stage to make entertainment for those who want to watch and listen. That's beautiful. Cool.
2: Boy, we couldn't be more polar opposites, even on this, because the drums, to me, I feel like I'm always trying to conquer them. And they always seem like an unobtainable beast that I just can never conquer, but I still want to. Does
3: that makes sense? Well, there's, there's one thing, yeah, the, I, I, I could see your point on that, but uh, I, even though there's more stuff to learn yeah. all the time. yeah. I take what I already know and I put it to as good use as I can. That way there I'm not overstepping my bounds and maybe not doing so well as a result. Just mm-hmm. stay within your boundaries. You can expand your boundaries, but do that on your own time, not on stage in the middle of a song and make everybody look... Oh, you no, know, of course like, not. What the hell was that?
2: No, no, I subscribe to the Keep It Simple Stupid routine.
3: Absolutely. I've always, you know, less about the drums and the drummer and more about the song.
2: Right. And the guy right. we got coming up later on today is all about that.
3: It, Playing to simple the song. and powerful. yes. Liberty is beautiful, beautiful he, with that.
2: I wouldn't even say simple. It's some, some of his stuff is pretty, you know. Oh,
3: absolutely, absolutely. But,
2: you know, the song comes first,
3: yep. not the showboating. Uh, even if you're a beginning drummer, there's enough there without going into the deep chops that you could probably play along to his songs.
2: Right. You know, for me, there were certain guys out there, and you certainly were one of them, um, along with, I would say, Tommy DeQuattro, who I think a lot of our listeners know. Sure. And talk about those influences. What got you into the, Because you said, you started off more all the hard rock stuff, but you're so yep. proficient at swing. It seems like you've played that all your life. Something well, was to hit you. with.
3: I, I saw it early on. Uh, you, of course, remember the Last Call Saloon, downtown Providence. Sure. Always a good band. Always. So, of course, when I wasn't playing, which unfortunately back then was a lot, I would have to go to school. Go to the last call, who's playing? Mm-hmm. My God, there was a ton of great drummers, all local and just phenomenal with their own twist on the style. Right. There was Mike Jansen from the Spot Finders. Yep. He had an uptown shuffle that would slay me every time. There's Pear Hansen. He's got a snap like nobody else. Tom DeQuattro, huge power. Tons of chops, and just like brutal with with Duke Robillard. Oh, yeah. Duke Robillard, Tommy Enright, and Tommy DeQuattro. What a band Mm. to see.
2: Pleasure Kings. Mm.
3: And then there was Neil. I used to go see Neil and the Vipers back in the day when there was Jack Matthews, early, early, early. Then there was Bobby Christina, who I really enjoyed his style because it was more immersed in that whole blues thing. Right. And he stole it from Texas, the real deal. Yep. You know, he got the real deal. Franny being his brother, how could you not? Of course. And it was so cool to get that that inner, like, the the shuffle rhythms, which would translate to rock and roll rhythms with all the, the ghost notes and all of that stuff. Right. We didn't play that in rock and roll, or at least not much of it. I was like, wow, this is exciting, something new to learn. Sure. You know? Had my first quote-unquote blues band with Storm and Norman and the Hurricanes, Tommy Ferraro on guitar, Mm -hmm. Norman Stimson, and uh, the, the great departed Donnie Simpson on bass. And it was, you know, they were all better at this stuff than I was, but it was a great learning experience. I got to experiment. I got to play it out live in front of people, which is really very quickly gets you to the right page. Sure. When you're playing in front of people and you go, "Oh boy, I don't want to do that again," or maybe you do want to do something again, and you commit it to memory. Yep. Super fun. Super fun whole style to learn. There was this guy Jerry who was just a local cat. He's a plasterer. I wish I could remember his last name. Another guy with a traditional grip, snap when he played Slay a shuffle, and it, there's something about that traditional grip thing. I don't know what it is. I never could get it down. But wow, when you got it, you got it. Pear Hansen does oh. that big.
2: Yeah. I just see him with Ronnie Earl. Because um, I, I got into it probably 10 years after you did. So I kind of arrived on the scene around 89, 90. And I got to see Steve Barbuto with the James Montgomery oh, band. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable drummer.
3: His too fast shuffle. Oh. Uh, my jaw would be on the floor. Yeah. Yep. Yep people don't realize
2: especially in the 80s Rhode Island the areas surrounding what a hotbed for that kind of music it was whatever Seattle is to the alternative (laughs) scene in the 90s Rhode Island was to the blues scene and we were getting I mean guys like Stevie Ray Vaughan and the T-Birds and and we're just you know passing through and playing like nothing because there's a there's a connection it's like an Austin Rhode Island connection
3: oh there was there was I mean there were guys coming up from Texas just to play Rhode Island yes and and there were guys from Rhode Island. Well well, you gotta play Texas. Yep. You just have to. I mean there's you know, you'd almost think there was a straight highway between the two. I know. Wish it was still there. Well, you're not kidding. You know, you had room full of blues. Oh how we with, how we forget Johnny I mean, Rossi. Johnny Rossi. No, I didn't forget. I hadn't <laughs> gotten there yet, but I didn't forget Go ahead. <laughs> he had that massively fat swing shuffle thing. Yep. Wow. I used to stand behind him at uh, in, down in Musquamica at the Windjammer. They had a huge stage, so I could go w- right behind the stage and just stand and watch him play. It was phenomenal. He wasn't like swinging from the trees with his sticks, no. but boy, there was power there.
2: Just that opening just, track on the, the Ronnie Earl album he played on. Ronnie, Ronnie John. Johnny. Yeah. Ronnie Johnny, huge. Listen to that and i do and not you i'm talking to the audience if anyone yeah, does, wants to know listen to that song it's just so effing cool i,
3: I believe that was the smoking album not positive but i think it was the smoking album neil guvin another monster oh yeah Sugar and the blue tones which was at one point ronnie earl and the broadcasters yep they call me mr earl album phenomenal drumming on there
2: my favorite track on that is the rock rumba wait for my chance you guys wait for my
3: chance to Nice. to yep yep and the and the whammy bar guitar in that wicked uh, oh, phenomenal who does that nobody
2: i think your guy does it
3: quite a bit and uh, you may tell you ronnie Earl kind of wrote that book though
2: yeah yeah
3: yeah yeah that was the good stuff uh, i i that was another album that i kind of weaned myself on it, it was you know kind of like the uh You've got to listen. You've got to learn it. Yes. That was one. Uh, that was one. Tell me about some
2: of the national acts
3: who got you inspired. Oh, of course, national the drummers. T-Birds. Of course. Uh, Mike Buck, Franny Christina. Yep. Totally different styles. Yep. But both phenomenal, both worthy of standing there and soaking it in. Uh, i so glad I got to do that. And again, my hat's off to Bobby Christina. Very instrumental in me learning some of that stuff, because I could go see it right here all the time. Would you think of some
2: of the guys who weren't doing so much of the, the, the blues thing, but just the all-around you know, journeyman drummers like Jeff Beccaro, um, Steve Gadd, those kind of guys, yep. were, were, right? Talk about that a little
3: bit. Oh, my God. You know, early on, I was so clueless. I had no idea the whole Steve Gadd thing. had no idea. Yep. I was like, yeah, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? But as I got older and I realized, yeah, it's about the song. And then it hit me. Oh, my God. That's what Gad's doing. Mm -hmm. He's not playing drums. He's playing the song, which is paramount in my mind right now. Simon Phillips is another guy, too. Oh, he's he's really got it all. He's got more chops than the entire Bruce Lee collection, (laughs) but he knows exactly when to use them. Yes. You know, phenomenal time, groove, uh, you, you know. Unbelievable. Speaking of drummers, like just close to my heart was uh, Jimmy Oldacre, who just passed, Eric Clapton's yep. drummer.
2: Yeah, that's right.
3: Uh, I've seen 8 billion bands do the song Cocaine, and not one of them, including myself, is going to get to that level where you make the song Cocaine, as simple as it is, sound legit and full. Right. Most guys want to overplay because it's really not a busy song. But what Jamie did in that song was just unbelievable.
2: It has to be about the groove and not about a flash or busy or not. And let's come to Liberty DeVito, who I know you actually
3: met. Yes, I did. Tell me about that. It was a great drum store locally in Pawtucket called Ocean State Percussion. I remember it. Russ Camiri was the proprietor, good friend of mine. And uh, he used to entrust me with taking care of the door for him. So I got to meet all the people that came in for clinics. And it got to meet Liberty DeVito and hear his power, like, unmiked, uh, uh, just like a live set of drums in a room. And it was, wow. You can put another guy on the drum set, it ain't going to sound like that. Liberty had the big tone right out of the cans. It was beautiful.
2: Guest spent 30 years as the ever-solid, always innovative drummer for Billy Joel, playing on recordings that took him to the top of the charts, around the world on countless tours, and earned him his rightful place in the pantheon of rock's greatest drummers. And now his newly released memoir entitled Liberty, Life, Billy, in the Pursuit of Happiness details those experiences and sets the record straight on a career that's truly unmatched in rock and roll. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Liberty DeVito
4: thanks Don great to be here
2: oh thank you sir I appreciate you doing it yeah where are you at I am out of Rhode Island
4: Rhode Island you got that uh yeah the podcast
2: well that's accent it. I had somebody on a couple of weeks ago ask me what country I was from I said New England so <laughs>
4: <laughs> that's the beauty of the United States it's all you go you know a couple of feet out of your hometown you hear somebody else talking a different way exactly right I love it I'm
2: also a drummer.
4: I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah,
2: yeah, I've been starving ever since. <laughs> and I blame you, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, you and Ringo. And, you know, like the rest of the world, you I know you're a big Beatle fan, and you were inspired by Ringo, but talk as if you're talking to some 15-year-old kid who has no idea what we're talking about. Tell me what that experience was like, seeing them and getting inspired.
4: Oh, well, it was February 1964. The president of the United States was just killed in November. We were uh, the new generation that had nowhere to go i mean elvis was the older generation's uh a star music star so when they showed up on uh the Ed sullivan show they because they came from liverpool england where nobody really knew where that was they, they could have come from mars <laughs> because they talked different they looked different and they were actually um, just recycling black music that we weren't allowed to listen to as white kids in the United States. Right. And all of a sudden, this was brand new stuff to us. They kind of like just blew the whole country away. Sure. It was a relief. It was it was a relief from the, the, the president being shot. And it, we were in a new year. And this was like, OK, this is going to be good.
2: Tell me how that made you want to play the drums.
4: Well, because when I, you know, I write this all in a book. When I was in uh, the, the sixth grade, my parents bought me a set of drums. They bought it for my cousin. I didn't ask for drums or anything like that. I always loved music, but I didn't ask for drums. And uh, all of a sudden, drums show up. And I asked my father later on in life, why did you get me drums? And he said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were a kid. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so uh, the drums were in my life. Yeah. But in sixth grade, when I went to join the school band, I couldn't do the buzz roll in the Star Spring of Banner, and they put me on the bass drum, which was a horror show. And so I got very frustrated, you know, didn't lose my interest in music, always loved music. But kind of the drums, I thought, oh, man, my dream is going to be killed. Then when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show, I, I pointed at the TV and I said, "I want to do that. Uh, I don't I don't care about the buzz roll this stuff. Yeah, right, right. That's what I want to do."
2: And what was that first kit? Do you
5: remember?
4: Oh uh, yeah, it was like a a, a leady uh, oh, yeah, nice. kit uh, with like a twenty six inch bass drum, really, and yeah, and and it had a, like a, a canoe going down a river on the front. You know the the, the tom heads were tacked. you know tack to the bottom oh, yeah. one of those yeah you know, i wish i still had it it'd be worth a fortune
2: probably zildjian a's
4: yeah right? could, yeah
2: oh, yeah beautiful one of your first professional gigs was working with mitch Ryder.
4: well that was insane it was um you know i was 18 years old like i graduated high school in june and this was now november i i had played first with with the detroit wheels mitch had split from the wheels and they came to town looking for a drummer. And I had been jamming with Vinnie Martell from the Vanilla Fudge. Oh, yeah. Behind the Fudges Management Company. So the, the Detroit Wheels went to that management company, which is called Breakout Management. And they said, we're looking for a new drummer. Johnny B is leaving the band. So they said, do you know anybody that's good? And, and somebody in the office said, there's a kid in the back that jams with Vinnie. He's pretty good. You know, so they come out to my house. And they, they had become a blues band by then. They were barely playing any Mitch's songs. And there was only one guy left from Mitch's, uh, original band, which, who was the bass player. Okay. So, uh, they had a, a singer, uh, named Rusty Day, who later went on to play with Cactus, uh, with Carmine's band Cactus. Yep. He stayed at my house a bunch of times. And, and I stayed, I went and stayed at his house when the Detroit wheels, uh, traveled across country. So my parents were very fond of him. Uh, He used to come over to eat when he was rehearsing with Cactus. And one day he said, look, I'm going to look for a gig for you. Always practice. Don't embarrass me when you get the call. (laughs) So when I got the call, the guy on the other end of the phone said, uh, uh, Rusty Day said, you're good. Um, Can you play with us? And it was Mitch Ryder's tour manager. Uh. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, when do you want me? And they said, tonight. I said, how about tomorrow night? I don't have a driver's license yet. My father has to drive me into the city. Oh,
2: man, you were young. You were that young. Yeah.
4: Yeah, very young.
2: What year were we talking? 68. 68. And now, uh, how long did you stay with them?
4: Well, at the time, the reason why I, I got that gig was because uh, his drummer, who was Johnny Siomas, who went on to do Frampton Comes Alive, he got very sick. Yeah. and so i was with him for like six weeks up and down the east coast uh, playing colleges all the way up and down the east coast from, yep. from maine to miami and then johnny got better and he came back but right after that 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 whole thing split up so it was uh six weeks uh, it, w- it was like going to school for six weeks learning how to play rock and roll with a real detroit rock and roll hitter
2: that's a great experience yeah now, after that, you were playing in the local New York, Long Island club scene, and you knew Billy Joel like a good, what, seven years before you actually ended up working with him?
4: Oh, that yeah. I was, I was 17 playing in a club on Long Island, and Billy was in a band called the Hassles. I was in a band called the New Rock Workshop, and we used to uh, play in the same club, you know, pass each other in the dock and say hi. You know, and I admired him. I thought he was really good, and yeah. he thought I was good. So we knew about each other before we actually played together.
2: What kind of stuff was he doing back then? Was it top forty stuff of the time, or was it- oh yeah?
4: Well, at the time, uh, it was this was the time of the vanilla fudge. Okay, you know when yep. they were doing uh, copies and remakes of uh, other songs, and most of them were like uh, Motown songs and R and B songs.
2: Keep me hanging uh, on.
4: Yeah, they did keep me hanging on. My uh, band, the New Rock Workshop, did "You Got Me Humming" by Sam and Dave. So did Billy's band, the Hassles. You know, we were doing a lot of stuff like that. Knock on wood, kind of R&B things, doing them with a little psychedelic edge to them.
2: Well, I know on his early albums, Piano Man, Street Life Serenade, he was using, I think, Ronnie Tut. Yes. And on the first album, I think he had Denny Sidewell from yeah, Wings. He, he did. How did yeah. you get in the lineup and how did that whole thing come together?
4: Well, when he was out in California, you know, he was using Studio Cats in the, in the, uh, in the sessions and then going out with a different band on the road. He got Doug Stegmeier in his band. Doug Stegmeyer was in a band called Topper with me. He was in the band with Topper with me, Russell Jabbers, and Howard Emerson. Now, Doug went out on the Street Life tour for the, for the album Street Life Serenade. Right. And on that tour, Billy told him, I want to move back to New York. I want you to stay with me, Doug. And I want the same band that goes in the studio with me to go on the road with me. And I want a New York style drummer. And Doug looked at him and said, you know, the guy. He was talking about me. Yeah. So when I auditioned for him, I had already been hanging around, you know, uh, of course, obviously with Doug, Billy's tour manager at the time was Brian Ruggles, still a good friend of Billy's. And I was hanging out with him uh, and we became very close. And so I was kind of in as far as friendship and hanging out with the guys before they, I even played musically. You know? So you had a
2: rapport already
4: with these guys. I did. I had yeah. a rapport already. When I went for the audition, Brian was the one that was going to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. <laughs> so <laughs> I was in. Yeah. And then we went in to record Turnstiles, the first album I played on. And um, we, it was just me, Doug, and Billy in the studio. And then Billy said, I need guitars to play on this tune, like like Miami 2017 or something like that. Mm. And me and Doug said, well, we know guitar players. And we got Russell, Jabbers, and Howie Emerson. And so the whole Topper band eventually became Billy Joel's band with the addition of Richie Cannata.
2: That's great. And tell me about those early sessions. Like, what, what, What strikes you when you think back of the Turnstile Sessions?
4: Well, when I look back at the turnstile sessions, I think about this beautiful pearl set of drums that oh. Billy had bought me right after your audition. Oh. Uh, you know, he was playing Elvis at the time. Uh, <laughs> he, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He said, what do you need? I said, um, how about a new set of drums? You know, because I was using this this mixed match set of Ludwigs. He said, OK, let's go. We went to Frank Wolf on 48th Street in Manhattan yeah. and b- bought this. this. Uh, it, was, it was 8, 10, 12, 13, and sixteen floor. Nice Pearl, fiberglass, thin shells. And I knew about them because Steve Gadd, I had seen them once before. uh, And I'm telling you, they sounded so great. They really sounded great. Those are the drums that are on Turnstiles and The Stranger.
2: Well, man, they do sound great. I mean, right from the opening salvo of the album with uh, Say Goodbye to Hollywood. Yeah. There's a story behind how you get that galloping kind of clapping sound with the (laughs) angry young man. Yeah. Tell me about that. (laughs)
4: yeah Billy uh, we were listening back to the track and in the verses Billy Billy was saying you know I want this kind of um this this uh, this uh, galloping kind of horse thing you know and he's banging on his chest he's banging, ba-da-bup, 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 and I said you want that exact sound he said yeah took him out in the studio put up two folding chairs laid them down and I played that part on his chest <laughs> <laughs> that's but awesome. uh, you know to brighten it up we I did it on brushes too uh, that's
2: a great <laughs> that's the innovation I'm talking about, and, you know, when I introduced you. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think some musicians may be too afraid to step yeah. out of the box.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, we stepped out of the box a lot doing things. Uh, there's a great story in the book about a stiletto, uh, you know, it goes that da dun, dun and it has the snap. Uh, well, I, we were testing out different snaps. Okay. And it rained that day when I came into the studio and I had this great umbrella that you pressed a button and it came out and it went snap, you know, it was really good. So they set up the microphones and uh, and they were getting a sound on it. And I keep pressing the button and snap, snap, you know, we did it for about a dozen times, you know, and then they said, okay, we're ready to roll. Here we go. I pressed the button and the, and the top of the umbrella just came flying right off. Of course. <laughs> of course <it> did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> after what a half hour getting sounds for it and then yeah
4: that's it. half hour getting sounds right. uh, but I, I, I know that they for um, you may be right I think they broke at least 12 panes of glass to get that one right one <laughs>
2: Stranger was the huge breakout album, and I know you've given a lot of credit to Phil Ramone. Yes. Now, Billy was at one point talking to George Martin about producing that. Yeah,
4: he was. Um, George, Sir George. Sir George, yeah. yeah. Uh, came, wonderful man. Uh, came to see us play, and we were all excited about it. After the show, Billy met with him and, and came back, and we said, well, what, do you, what did George think? And he said, he wants to produce me. And we were like, that's great, man. Yeah, but he wants to use studio musicians. Yeah. Uh, That's when Billy said, uh, Love me, love my band, and said no to George Martin. And um, then Phil Ramone was the next in line. He was a staff producer with uh, Columbia Records at the time. Right. And he came to see us at uh, Carnegie Hall. And um, he met with us right after the show at the Howard Johnson's down the block where we were staying. He said, "I, I want you guys in the studio to be the rock and roll animals that you are on stage. That's cool. You know, yeah. But he just, he showed us how to hone it in, you know, like just bring it in.
2: Was he a taskmaster? Was he someone who demanded take after take after take, like a Phil Spector? Or was he more just get it live and do it once and get that original spirit?
4: Uh, Phil Phil went for the feel. That was, Phil went for the feel. You know, in, in the studio, it was said, uh, if you're going to make a mistake, play it loud, because it might be the best thing you'd play all day. That's nice. So, you know, it was yeah. like uh phil would sit behind the board and we'd be playing and doing a take and he'd go you know make a couple of changes and if if he stood up that means the take was was good so keep going and then if he started to move that was it you knew that was it you know even if the record sped up a bit slowed down a bit that was the beauty of 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 the way we used to record there was no uh what do you call quantizing right was none of that you didn't play to a click Uh, A couple of times I did. I remember when we did The Stranger, they had the click in the board. And I I was like, oh no, not a click. And Steve Kahn, who was playing guitar at the time, he looked at me and he said, the click is your friend. (laughs) (laughs) We actually used the click... To set the perfect tempo for the song. Right. Because as, as the song went on, you know, I like to go from a verse into a chorus and just give that little edge of, of, you know, play in front of the beat then you right. speed it up a little bit. Right. And if the song wasn't, if it wasn't the take and the song got faster by the end, we always had that click to go back to that original tempo. Cause usually when you start recording the, the next take, if there's no click to go refer to, you start at the tempo that you ended at. Right. You know, yeah. so that the, the click was a safety net. A couple of times, we, the click went all the way through. I think I'm running on ice. The click went all the way through. Uh, just a couple of songs.
2: When I was eight years old in 1979, I remember spending hours playing along to my eight track of The Stranger trying to <laughs> learn that opening fill you do right before the verse of Only the Good Die Young. Tell oh, yeah. me about how all that came about, because I know there's a great story behind that.
4: Well, see, if he was old as I am and you had bought the Axis Boldest Love album by Jimi Hendrix, uh, you would have heard that same fill on uh, Up from the Skies by Mitch Mitchell. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I just want
1: to talk to you. I want to do you no harm. I just want to know about your different lives of oh, this people
4: fall. <laughs> you know, yeah, that was originally written as a reggae song. You know, we were trying it, beat it to death in the studio. Yeah, and I told Billy, I said, "Dude, the closest you've ever come to Jamaica is on the Long Island Railroad. There's a stop at Jamaica, New York. You know." <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and uh, and so I said, "No, let let's let's try this. Let's make it swing." And it, it was sitting really well when yep. it was swinging like right. that. And I thought, well, I got it to swing. Why did I do that, Mitch Mitchell? Beginning, you know, if Mitch was alive, I probably owe him money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny on on Still Rock and Roll of me. You know, I break into that straight four fill, right? You know, and Alan White did that on uh, uh, Instant Karma that's right. why i heard that and i went up to alan at a am show and i said you know alan i got that uh that straightforward bill from from you playing you know, it on the comma." and he just put his hand out like he wanted money <laughs>
2: <laughs> i read what you said in rolling stone that you've been called a songwriter's drummer that's just so true because you play to the song as good as someone like john bonham or yeah. keith moon or neil perp bless them all they were given the song big shot and then given the song rosalinda's eyes i don't know if they would be as versatile
4: I think my versatility came, uh, see, my education was, was not uh, going to a studio and sitting with a drum teacher. My education came from listening to records. My education came from people that I knew that loved music, that didn't even play an instrument. They would turn me on to different kinds of music all the time. But my big shot came when I played weddings, believe it or not. Oh. A friend of mine, he got me in this wedding band. I did not want to do it. He lent me his tux, he lent me the bow tie, the whole thing, you yeah. know. Yeah. He says, you're going. I already told him you're coming. Uh, it was in a catering hall. So I felt like I got a, an offer that I couldn't refuse. So I, I went to this thing. I'm driving there thinking like, wow, I play with Mitch Ryder. What am I doing playing weddings? I, I'm, I'm destroying my career. It's over, you know. But I got there. And when the, uh, uh, the the trumpet player, they, these are all old guys, too, very, very old, too, you know, like at least three times my age. Sure. And um, so they, the trumpet player turned around and says, uh, the bride wants to start with a merengue. I went, what the hell is a merengue? <laughs> I played those weddings for two and a half years, and I learned more there than anywhere else. Oh,
5: yeah. You okay. know, because you, so, you had to
4: play ethnic music. Right. You know, you know uh, uh, my Yiddish mama, you know, the Tarantel, <laughs> right. uh, all, all that kind of stuff. So when I got in the studio with Billy and it came to Just The Way You Are, it was easy to pick up a brush and a stick because right. I played boss and overs at weddings, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And my favorite album, Glass Houses. Don't ask That's me why. What a great tune. I don't think there's a snare hit in the whole song.
4: There's not. As a matter of fact, there's no bass drum in it either. It, that, That boom. Huh. Boom! It's a floor tom. Really? I, pl- I played that with with a shaker and a floor tom. See
2: that? I call that courageous. No. People might think that's crazy, but you yeah. know, I don't know if I was given that song, I'd be like, well, I gotta play the snare, I gotta do the to there's no hi hat. Very few drummers do that. I mean, Ringo on the song "Something," there's no hi hat in it.
4: Right. There's no hi hat in it. In, uh, I was listening to a song on the radio yesterday that Ringo did. Um, I'm looking through you, and there's a tap. And he's tapping on a, on a paper cup. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, at the time, they didn't have those emulators. You couldn't emulate things on a keyboard. Right. You had to do it there. You I, know?
2: I could get off on a tangent about computers and how the whole uh. music scene is destroyed because of it. And it's yeah. too easy today. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to look for ways of doing things.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you develop your own style when you, when you're, um, you know, just looking in the room for something to hit. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, it becomes your own thing. I just did a track. I, I play this charity event every year, but this year it's been canceled because of the, the virus. Of course. And, um, the, but the band over the internet is getting together to play walk this way. Right. Yep. So I, I had to record it the other day in the studio. I had to record the guitar track that the guitar player did and the vocal track. And I did something so different than the record, you know. Like uh, during the line, Mm -hmm. uh, I played it uh, like halftime, almost like hip hop kind of thing. And uh, when they when the producer called me, he said, "I love this." And he said these words. He said, "It's so Liberty DeVito."
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I can see that. Tell me any memories about Glass Houses. Any any specific things stand out in your mind when you were recording?
4: Well, the, the great thing about Glass Houses is we, we recorded, maybe you may be right, uh, sometimes a fantasy and maybe one other song. And then we went on the road and we did those songs in the tour uh, during the show. Okay. And just to see the reaction, what the people would feel, you know, how they would react to the yeah. new songs yeah. before they actually heard them, you know. And the reaction was great. And Billy knew that this was going to be big. And that, it was. was a good album. Great album.
2: And right around that time, you also did some work on Karen Carpenter's one and only solo album. Now, did Phil Ramon get you involved in that?
4: Yes, he did. It was at the same time, in the same studio, with the same musicians. (laughs) Ah.
2: And why do you think A&M refused to release it at the time?
4: Well, because um, her brother was afraid uh, that they were going to lose their audience. You know, they were real, like, uh, apple pie and, uh, right. you know, uh, big smiles and all that kind of stuff. And she's singing stuff about making love in the afternoon and, and things like that. You know, she's she's coming of age. She She's like, you know, I'm old enough to be able to sing this stuff, and this is what's happening in my life now. But her brother didn't want it to happen. So he put it on the shelf, and it stood there for 10 years.
2: Yeah, what a shame, because it's cool. I mean, she might have got an entirely new audience.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, well, the,
2: that's the lesson learned from you guys is that you didn't stick to one style. Right. And the Beatles never stuck to one style either. I mean, that's, that's... No,
4: you know, it's funny. I have to do a, a thing for the Beatle channel on Sirius Radio tonight. I was, I was going through the songs, like, you know, what, what songs will I play? And um, Your Mother Should Know uh, came through. Yeah. And, um, oh, no, six, when I'm 64. And I can remember when that album came out, I was 17 years old listening to the whole album and then when i'm 64 comes on and you're like laughing because it's like these guys are so good they can do anything and you'll love it yep you, you know sure i mean going from lovely Rita or getting better to when i'm 64 it's like oh, my god I know. that's so great or
2: from you an, know? actually from an indian raga <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yes
4: yeah. And yes that, that's insane Yes. And the, I don't know too many people that picked up the needle and p- passed it over. You no, know? no.
2: I don't want to dwell on the negative stuff. But, but, I, but, I, <laughs> but I do want to mention, um, I know Billy got ripped off by his manager, the former brother-in-law, and there yep. was a big lawsuit in 89. And I I'd heard that the relationship business-wise kind of changed around that point. Yes, it did. Can you explain a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, well, um, you know, he lost a lot, Billy. Uh, I mean, the guy... There was a lot of money missing, let's put it that way, that Billy thought he had. And um, so in order to recoup, and Billy said this himself, he felt like he was uh, Peter stealing from Paul, but... um, you know, we were getting bonuses on the records on the albums. Yeah, uh, he for that to stop. He said, I, I can't do that anymore. We were getting percentage of the of, of the uh, gross when we played uh, arenas. Right. And he said, I can't do that. I have to put you on a salary now, you know, so he did everything he possibly could to keep Billy Joel and this unit together. Mm. But it did take taking some things from us that uh, we were getting at the time. Right. Do you
2: remember what your last gig with Billy was?
4: Last date? Oh, yeah. It was uh, 2003 at the Brendan Byrne Arena in New Jersey, I believe.
2: Did you feel something was happening in the air? Or? No.
4: No? No, I, no. I was totally blindsided by what happened. <laughs> but, you know, I should have known because uh, Billy likes to change. I mean, I played with him for 40 years. So so for, say, like 45 years uh, I mean, of 35 years or more, he had had, a, you know, went for Piano Man, a street life, that made a major change coming to New York with Turnstiles, and then changed and did Stranger, which was a pop album, and then 52nd Street, which had more jazz influence, and then Glass Houses was rock. So he constantly was changing. I was the only thing in 30 years that he didn't change. You <laughs> know? Right, right, right. It's a good run. <laughs> it was a great run. I, my, my kids went to school. We all ate.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it still hurts oh yeah
4: because we were friends right you know? and now the great thing is is that we have that friendship back again
2: i read you guys had breakfast together and sat together and, yep. and talked and, and it was all over something ridiculous and stupid
4: stupid yes and i'm like yes.
2: I, I won't ask what it is the only thing is like you never got the chance to refute whatever he thought it was you know all this time
4: well well here's the deal what, what happened it is Billy Joel is surrounded by so many people. I mean, there's the other band members, there's the road crew, there's management, there's, there's so many people that he trusts to do their jobs. So he's trusting them. So if he hears something that somebody said that I said or did, um, he's like thinking like, okay, I could, I trust this guy and I believe what this guy is saying. But his mistake was he didn't come to me and ask me if I did that or said that. And my mistake was I didn't stand out in front of his house and waited until he pulled out with his car and stopped him and said, what happened? Right. You know, I let my uh, Sicilian blood get the best of me, and he let his Billy Joel get the best of him. Right. Forget about him. I don't care about him. You know, Mm. it was that kind of thing. I'll show him.
2: You know, band members die, unfortunately. Musicians get accidents. and. It it didn't come to that. You guys got to work it out. So that's cool.
4: Well, that was the thing, you know. It was like uh, uh, you're laying in bed and you're thinking, "Wow, life is short, and so many people are, are, are dying around you, and you know, friends and and you hear about it all the time. Uh, who's dying? You know, just this week it was Peter Green and and uh, Regis Philbin. Yeah. You know, yep. all, like, oh my goodness. You I know? know.
2: I know. It must be so proud of your body of work, one kick-ass song after the other. But is there any track that you hear, whether on the radio or that you say to yourself, man, I wish we could go back in the studio and take another crack at that?
4: Well, I wish we never did My Life. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hi. I, don't, I don't like that song so much that uh, we were, when we were playing with Elton, doing the Billy Elton thing, uh, we were rehearsing uh, My Life and we're playing it. And Elton stops playing and he looks at Billy and he goes, and he points at me and he goes, he's not playing it right. And Billy (laughs) Billy looks at Elton and goes, he's not going to play it right. He thinks this song sucks.
2: (laughs) So that's the one,
4: huh? Yeah. Not crazy about that song. And tell me me real
2: quick about the Lords of 52nd Street.
4: Lords of 52nd Street. Ah, yes. We were inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame as the Billy Joel Band. Uh, Myself, Richie Cannata, Russell Javres, and the late Doug Stegmaier. Now, I was still upset about what happened with me and Billy. And I said, I'm not going, you know. Um, but uh, I talked to the guys and I went, okay, I'll go. And uh, as a matter of fact, I was so upset about it, I sent somebody else to do the sound check. I said, you go. I'm not going to do the sound check. <laughs> but we got there and um, they asked us to play one song. The crowd reaction was so great. We ended up playing four or five songs. And after that, we thought, well, you know, it's really funny. All these people in tribute bands are making tons of money playing uh, Billy Joel stuff in the tribute band. We're the real guys. Why don't we do it? There you go. You know. Yeah. So as we were rehearsing and as we we're starting to tour and stuff like that, I'm falling in love with the songs again. And all I could think about is how much fun it was to do them in the studio and how much fun it was to go on the road. The only thing now that was missing was. The guy that I used, I looked at for 30 years, you know, right. every song, we looked at each other's eyes just, you know, because to see how it felt, to nudge your head, to, sh- to look at that girl in the front row, you know, right. whatever it was, right. you know, and in the studio, you know, uh, going through the songs and, you know, uh, having an opinion about everything, you know, so that guy was missing and I wanted that guy back. Yeah. That was my friend. Sure. You know, sure. So. He was the only thing missing. And so I reached out to him, you know, and and luckily the next day he wrote back, you know. So it was good.
2: All right. Best gig, worst gig. I think I know what the best one's going to be. But I had to guess the Soviet Union gig. Uh,
4: yes, yes. The Soviet Union was a highlight uh, in those 30 years. To go to a place where, you know, uh, remembering that you hid on the desks when you were a kid because you thought they were going to destroy you. Right. And, and meeting these people that were just beautiful, just fantastic just couldn't give you anything but their hearts you know because they had nothing they had absolutely nothing and they couldn't believe that we went there to play for them that was definitely a trip worst gig i would say had to be what we had a stage at one time where you walked into the arena and all the equipment was underneath the, the stage right it was on hydraulics and um yeah, the monitors went to the stage, hung under the stage, so the guitar player had to stand on top of the grating to hear his guitar. All right, yeah. During the first song, everything's supposed to come up pianos, drums. Well, the drums did not come up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that's like? Being under the stage, banging away at a first tune, wow. and having Billy, at the time, because it was uh, uh, No Man's Land from the River of Dreams tour, he's got a guitar around his neck, you know, faking it.
5: Right, right.
4: He's leaning over this hole, looking down at me, (laughs) laughing, just laughing. It was such a Spinal Tap uh, moment. It was was unbelievable. It was embarrassing, but funny.
2: How many songs until you finally popped up?
4: Well, at the end of the song, just like the Spinal Tap, when he opens up that thing, (laughs) I I finally popped up. Oh, I (laughs) wish
2: that was on video. (laughs) Ha (laughs) Ha 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 ha. live billy joel right there featuring the great liberty devito doing his best hal blaine impression and we want to thank him for spending some time with us on the it's only rock and roll podcast and remember his new autobiography liberty life billy in the pursuit of happiness is available at hudsonmusic.com and of course at amazon.com mike i want to take one more crack at this joking thing i think i got it down pat now ready
3: so, i'll laugh anyway how's that
2: okay what's the difference between a drummer and a savings bond <laughs> you, you, gotta, oh, you gotta That
3: wasn't the joke. Yeah, oh, no. sorry. One will mature uh, and make money. But, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was probably yeah. better that I laughed before. Yeah. So, Mike, what are you doing now? Well, I'm of great fortune to be in a band called Neil and the Vipers for the last, what has it been, 16, Sixth, 17 years now? Yeah amazingly enough oh, i lost that bet <laughs> boy uh me too I, I didn't see i didn't see me being in any band that long it just, they never last but here we are as amazing as it is uh with all the, the the personnel changes that have happened over the years in the band where it landed is other than myself uh, it's really a reincarnation of an earlier version of the Vipers. So it's all people that are kind of on the same page. Boy, is that important.
2: Your front man, Dave Howard, you played with him in Dave Howard and I the did. High Rollers for years. Dave Howard
3: and the High Rollers, that was uh, 12 years. Then from that, I went directly to Neil and the Vipers. It was a uh, three-man outfit at the, at the time. Neil was fronting the band, singing and playing guitar. A lot of work. And you guys easily do a good 200 dates a year. Um, yeah, maybe, well, maybe not this year, but wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the more the merrier for me. Sure. Um, like I said, when I hit the stage, it, it's a gleeful moment for me. It makes me feel good. I, I feel better than I do when I feel good not playing drums. It's just some higher power pulling me up and, and making me feel great when I play. There's, there's really nothing like it.
2: Well, I remember when I was a kid and I used to come over your house, and we'd be playing drums and you'd be showing me stuff and going, going back and forth. I remember one one day, I don't know who was, someone said, oh, yeah, happy birthday, Mike. I said,
3: shit, I'm over here on your birthday. And you're like, yeah, there's nothing else I'd want to do than play drums. Yeah, play drums. Seriously. What am I going to do, sit around and eat cake? Yeah, right. That's it- probably not that good. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Let me
2: ask you a question. Do you think that electronics has been a hindrance uh, to, let's say, young kids picking up the drums and wanting to play? Do you think drum machines and, and that whole scene has hurt the business? Do you think it's, it's made it more accessible to
3: people? I have no problem with someone, quote-unquote, playing through a drum machine, uh, as long as they're not just like picking a beat and letting it run. there are people who like literally program it in and and they're 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 playing it you know they're they're creating something from the ground up as a drummer would do only acoustically right i I have no problem with that i've dabbled in electronic drums myself i literally did not like it at all Mm -hmm. mostly because of the acoustic feedback of real drums there's that power that comes back to you that you don't get even amplified with electronic drums. Because it, you're bouncing it, off it, a pad. It, you're not bouncing off. You and know. Yeah, and that was part of it, although they have They've come a long uh, way, mesh, mesh padded uh, drum pads now, and, and they do feel better, but they're, they're almost too bouncy, so you're kind of at the other spectrum now. Like It's too easy. Remember those you know, original ones butt. that
2: you'd see, like, in 1979? They almost looked like leather bar stool seat covers. You know what
3: I mean? Well, Simmons put them out, I think. Oh, I, yeah. Well, yeah. Way back. Yeah, they were, they were hexagonal. Those, you so, mean? Well,
2: the original, the, the ones I remember seeing were round. I know the hexagonal ones that came out maybe, like, in 82.
3: Yep. But we're yep. talking And even, I remember, Tam, I had some that yep. kind of looked uh, triangular. Yep, yep, yep. And those actually, believe it or not, the bass drum felt great because they put a center pad in there. Yeah, And I don't know quite what it was, but when you played it, it felt like a real bass drum. It had that, the, a little give mm-hmm. and and a little take, but you still don't get that acoustic feedback. No. It just didn't do it for me. I tried to use them for rehearsing and for uh, practicing at home. And it was like, ugh, all I got here with that tap, tap, tap noise. I Oof. didn't like it at all.
2: All right. I'm going to hit you now because we're coming close to the end of the show. Sounds good. And I didn't even tell you in advance. So I'm putting you on the spot. Favorite drum song.
3: Favorite drum song? Oh my. That has to be Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin. For me, I love the, the, the of course, you know, the limelight for the drummer at the beginning. Yep. The limelight for the drummer at the end. Mm-hmm. It's just a nice, powerful, simple rock and roll song throughout the whole thing. Good you know, choice. It also incorporates that ghost note kind of thing in a rock and roll setting. Right. Almost Earl Palmer-ish, if you will.
2: And we all know he's kind of uh, riffing off a Chuck Berry lick.
3: Yep. Yeah, I be, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think it was a little Richard tune that he copped that from, and I believe it actually was Earl Palmer, but I'm not positive I on think,
2: that. I always heard it was Run Run Rudolph.
3: No, that, that I think it goes back further than that.
2: But when I'm talking drum song, I mean drum song, uh, White Ball, uh, Moby Dick, Toad, those kind of which just all basically the drummer is the headliner. Yeah,
3: I see what you're getting at. I see what you're getting at. But again, uh, when I started, I grew very fast into playing songs, not playing drums. I mean, I was playing Rolling Stones and Beatles yep. early on. It wasn't about any. Drum solos? Yes, yes. And it was like, learn this song because, wow, every song's got its own thing. Sure. And and to learn all of those different things, boy, you've got a vocabulary after you're done. Oh, yeah.
2: I did say same know, thing.
3: Without needing a ton of chops, without needing right. solos. Not to say I didn't do my share of solos. I was in a rock and roll band called Trickster back in the day, and I used to do a 20-minute drum solo every night. Mike. So, yeah, I've been Mike. there, done that, but I don't need it.
2: Mike. Was, yes was there spandex involved
3: uh no no you don't want to see someone built like me in spandex that's that bad
2: we've come to the end of the extravaganza but i want to thank mike
3: labelle and mike how can we hear uh some young neil well of course youtube hey um of course you could uh which hopefully will come along sooner or later come to a show and uh maybe grab the cd
2: fantastic and i want to thank once again liberty devito his book liberty life billy and the pursuit of happiness available on amazon and we hope you'll all join us again at its only rock and roll podcast
3: thanks mike thank you from Warren, rhode island young neil and the viper